Nanny's Apple and Prune Pot. Approximate cook time, 45 minutes. You'll want to preheat your oven to 350 degrees and your ingredients, you'll need one cup of water, one cup of flour, one half cup of butter, three eggs, a pinch of sugar, four apples sliced, one cup of dried prunes, a dash of granulated sugar, and of course the most important ingredient, five tablespoons of rat poison. You'll bring the boil, the water to boil with the butter and sugar, and when it's boiled, you'll stir in the flour. And over low heat, you'll continue to stir until you're able to form a doughy ball. And into this dough, you'll mix your eggs, well beaten until the ball is smooth. You'll then grease a nine inch pie tin. You'll roll out the pastry, lining the bottom and sides of the pan with pastry dough, and of course, clip the excess for the pie towel. Add your apple slices and prunes in hearty layers. It's best to soak the prunes overnight in rat poison, and really, any generic hardware store variety will do quite well. After spreading the apple slices and prunes into the shell, you'll pour your lethal prune juice and marinated um, prunes over. Um, the juice adds a little bit of a flavor and it actually helps to conceal the taste of the rat poison. And if the arsenic tartness remains, don't forget to add an extra tablespoon of sugar for good measure. You'll want to cover the pie with the leftover dough in a preheat in your preheated oven for 45 minutes, checking occasionally. Top with granulated sugar while the top crust is fresh from the oven. And it's guaranteed to be a real man-pleasing treat. Now, obviously this recipe um, is from Nanny Doss, who is who we'll be talking about today. Um, this episode will be a little bit shorter because Nanny Doss's early life is really kind of unknown to us. Um, and a lot of the information we have about her has been compiled from various sources. Um, chief among them, a member of Nanny Doss's own family, Sherby Green, who opened up her research materials to the crime library. And much of Nanny's life still remains shrouded in mystery. And in between um, Sherby Green's papers and other sources, there still exists a few blank spots where events can only kind of be conjectured by those who write about Nanny Doss. So... In those few instances, um, we will go with our best guess. Um, a lot of this information comes from um, a writer named Joseph Geringer, and it's called Nanny Doss, Lonely Hearts Lady Loved Her Men to Death. Um, and so this is Nanny Doss's actual pie recipe. Um, as you can tell, the rat poison and arsenic absolutely makes it lethal. And we'll get into exactly what she was doing with these... Um, apple and prune death pies here in just a moment you are now listening to murder v wrote and i'm your host v Nancy Hazel was born to poor farming parents in Blue Mountain, a tiny hamlet nestled in the bottomlands of Alabama's Northeast Hill Country. Her life promised very little glamour, meager romance. Glamour did not attract her, but of love, she would spend a lifetime pursuing it. 
The nearest claim to fame she had, and it was little, was that her grandma Holder was remotely related to the Lincoln family that produced our 16th president. Nancy's mother, Louisa, or Lou, as she was called, was a caring woman, and she was deathly afraid of her husband, who was very hot-tempered. His name was James. Um, there's some evidence that Nancy was born before Lou married James. Um, census records show that Nancy's birth was in 1905, and they show Lou living alone with Nancy, and James seems to have come onto the scene later. Um, but from where he appeared or exactly or how he came into the family, there really isn't much information about that. Nancy's childhood wasn't really happy. Um, Nanny, as we know her and is the nickname she had at an early age, really wandered aimlessly on an erratic schedule to and from and around school. Sometimes she went, sometimes she didn't. Um, so she had a trio of sisters and a brother who came after her. So four additional siblings. Um, if their father wanted the kids on the farm that morning to help with the field work, the entire brood stayed home. After all, James Hazel was the boss, and if rumors are correct, he wouldn't spare the switch on his daughter nor his wife to get what he wanted. So by the age of five, Nanny was cutting wood, she was plowing fields, she was clearing weeds off of the land, she was picking up trash, um, really anything fun like going to, to ball games or Social interactions with her friends were, were strictly forbidden. And when Nanny was able to go to school, it was hard work to go there too. It was two miles there and then two miles back. So you could see why maybe school was not at the top of mind and priority. And I will preference this to say that back at this time, that was pretty common just because when you had a lot of farming communities, you had a lot of children because you wanted them to be able to help out on the farm, which means that the children very often did not go to school. Um, and a bit of that idea of children helping out on um, farms and in farming communities is left over in the way that American children um, by design go to school. Obviously that has changed some bit, but the reason that they are out during summers um, and then winter breaks primarily is to coincide with harvesting and um, planting seasons. We've identified that the Hazels really didn't let their kids have very much fun. They really did chores from sunup to sundown and their dad was really kind of a mean asshole to them for lack of a better word. In an interview that Nanny gave in a Life to Life magazine later in her life, she blamed a lot of her adult problems on a head injury that she received when she was about seven years old. She'd gone with her family to visit a relative um, in downstate Alabama, and the train ride was really one of the, the thrills of Nanny's life up to this point. She'd never been off the farm, much less on a vacation. So this was very exciting for her. But when the train was forced to make an emergency stop, Nanny jolted forward and slammed her head on the iron seat frame in front of her. She suffered from pains and blackouts for month and for months and headaches for the remainder of her life is, is what Nanny reports of this incident. And while some writers tend to kind of point to this as some change in behavior and whatnot, family historian Sherby Green scoffs at this and she says, no, Nanny just had a plain old mean streak. I'm addicted to genealogy and in studying my family, I've learned that many of our members carried a fierce pride and a tough, tough reputation. And while they didn't take lives, they were nonetheless hard people. I believe Nanny bore that trait, but simply took her bad humor dangerously further. Quote. Also, according to Sherby, Nanny had terrible mood swings and dreamed of love and finding her own Prince Charming. 
Her only real interest was her mother's romantic magazines and she would sit for hours in her bedrooms just looking at the loving couples staring out from her from the pages. And as she grew older, her favorite bits were the ads for the Lonely Hearts Club. The early 1900s, or 1900s if you can imagine, were an age of romantic frivolity where every female wanted to look, you know, like a Gibson girl, you know, um, cherubic and lovely from all the angles and men were the bosses in their high starched collars and walrus mustaches um, but all society knew was that it was the feminine sex who under coy smile and blossoming fragrance really ruled the world so as Inani entered dating age she was held back from most of the boys by her father who saw Nanny and her three sisters as field hands that he really wasn't eager to give up to the idea of, of marriage. So they weren't allowed to attend church socials or Saturday night outings um, at the tavern or the community hall. Uh, makeup was outlawed, outlawed for them. They could not wear silk stockings because that was considered sinful. And their fixed hair and form-fitting dresses, absolutely a no-go. He said no daughter of his would tempt the male libido. And when the time came, he growled, he would pick the husbands for his daughter. So there was really no need for them to go out and interact with boys socially. Weekend nights, you would find all of the Hazel sisters kind of sitting in the house with the flickering lights. Um, sad because they, you know, all the other kids their age were down to so-and-so's barn, dressed up, having a good time. And they could hear the music kind of muffled from far off, but, you know, they were never allowed to go. Nanny, however, did manage to sneak away here and there when she learned if there was a, a hayloft or something like that. And certainly Lou, her mother, did know of some of these escapades, but kept quiet. Her reconciliation may have been that if Nanny became with child, then at least she would be able to do something that her mama herself had been able to do. Get away from the dictator. The Hazels approved of a young man named Charlie Braggs. Um, and this was Nanny's co-worker at the Linen Thread Company where she went to work in 1921. He was a tall, handsome, curly-haired boy, um, and he really was Nanny's shadow and doted on her. Really, her family noted that unlike the boys in Blue Mountain, Charlie's main preoccupation, even above Nanny, was his mother. He was a, a mama's boy. His paycheck supported her, and he treated his mom like she was the queen of all of Alabama, and this was good, estimated James Hazel. Um, he respected his elders, and this was something that his that Nanny, his daughter, could learn from. Braggs was definitely in with the family, and within four months after bringing him home for supper, Nanny found herself walking down the aisle on her way to marital bliss, whether she wanted it or not. And years later, Nanny wrote, I married, quote, as my father wished, to a boy I'd only known for four or five months who had no family, only a mother who was unwed, who had taken over my life completely when we were married. Only a mother who was unwed. She had never seen anything wrong with what he did, but she would take spells. She would not let my own mother stay all night. Rephrased, Nanny hadn't lost her demanding father. She'd gained a mother-in-law of identical cloth. If Nanny wanted to dine out, Mrs. Braggs didn't. And Mrs. Braggs would contract these dizzy spells or, or, or stomach cramps until her son basically gave up and just did what she wanted and so it'd be the same anytime nanny wanted to do something that mrs braggs didn't want to do um and over the period of their marriage charlie and nanny had um their first four daughters uh the first melvina in 1923 and the last florine in 1927 so nanny is caught in this marriage where she is 
pressured to raise all these kids she's had back to back she's trying to please a very relenting mother-in-law and she just began to kind of break under this pressure and she began to drink and and smoke quite a bit and she certainly would seek comfort in the arms of other men when she would go to the assorted gin mills and let the men drool over hers and made her feel like she was still attractive these indiscretions were fairly easy to pull off because she chose them when her husband charlie himself was drunk and in the bed or in the arms of another woman or two in the outskirts of town so she was really left to her devices in these nights and so she was able to do the same thing essentially that charlie was doing she said that he would disappear for days and forgetting to remind herself that she looked forward to her to his binges and i think he looked forward to hers too the marriage was up and down and they really just kind of were together maybe once a week at their dinner table and it was by accident a lot of times early in 1927 the braggs lost both their two middle daughters um to suspected food poisoning each child seemed fine at breakfast and then had died by lunchtime and although the local medics did call their deaths accidental charlie braggs wasn't convinced he evidently thought that he had seen something wrong in Nanny's eyes up close, and he soon bolted, taking his older his oldest daughter and favored Melvina with him. He left newborn Florine behind. Of the two deceased children, although there is no proof, there is little doubt that their mother consciously poisoned them to death. Overwhelmed and unable to cope with the responsibilities of her situation and with her own reality, Nanny simply trashed those two extra mouths to feed, and to her it was a matter of economics. When Charlie Braggs left this time, it wasn't for his usual three or four days. This time he disappeared for months. His mother died sometime during this, a natural death, and he remained apart from something that he was afraid of. Not knowing where he had gone or if he would return, Nanny was forced to take a job at the nearest cotton mill to support herself and baby Florine. Charlie finally reappeared in Blue Mountain in late summer 1928, almost a year later. Um, he brought with, back with him more than himself and Melvina. He also came arm in arm with another woman, a divorcee, and her own child. Few words were spoken between the awkward adults, and Nanny took the hint. She packed her personal belongings, dressed her two daughters, and left, cursing Charlie, cursing Charlie's girlfriend, and cursing her own bad fortune. Charlie essentially is known as the husband that got away because husbands number two, three, four, and five would not see the writing on the wall as he had, and they died horrible deaths. After her breakup with Charlie Briggs, Nanny found employment in a cotton mill in Anniston, just outside of Blue Mountain. The hours were long and hot, but it gave her the excuse she wanted to get out of the house and away from her nagging parents to whose house she'd returned after her marriage fell apart from Charlie. It was an equal compromise. Her mama, Lou, enjoyed watching over her grandkids, and Nanny appreciated the interested glances she received from the boys in the shop. But she didn't want to make the same mistake marrying another mountain boy with the mother complex, nor one with his wandering ways, although she had also spent a fair amount of their marriage in other men's beds. She acted as if herself believed it was Charlie's womanizing that caused this divorce. Nanny turned wide-eyed to the Lonely Hearts column in the local newspaper, writing fastidiously to the number of men whose advertisements interest her. One of their responses engaged her, and that was from a 23-year-old factory worker named Frank Harrelson, who wrote pretty verse and whose black-and-white Kodak photo looked even prettier, with dimpled cheeks like Clark Gable and wavy hair. In return, she sent him a cake and a picture of herself and pert words that edged on the essence of sex. 
Since Harrelson lived in nearby Jacksonville, he fired up his car and headed straight over south to Blue Mountain. And on her doorstop waiting, he found an alluring pretty woman more magnetic than the photo that she had sent. The picture hadn't captured that twist of amour that sparkled so afire in Nanny's eyes. He proposed, of course, and she accepted, and they married in 1929. But all the time, Frank was drunk. Um, and as the months went on and the honeymoon period came to an end, Nanny realized that her tall, good-looking husband was an alcoholic. And not only that, she discovered, much to her chagrin, that he had spent time in jail for felonious assault. Gentleman Frank was no gentleman. When she wed this disappointment to be, Nanny had taken her two daughters from their grandmother in place, a place where they had liked and brought them to Jacksonville. And there's really no recorded testimony of the girl's experience here, opinion of their stepfather, but it must have been a shock to them. Too young to have clearly recalled the shouting bouts between their father and mother, the earliest memories they probably had were spending time with their very calm, patient grandmother. And now they were old enough what it to understand what it meant when the Jacksonville cop showed up at their door a couple of times a week to tell Nanny that her husband was in the brig again for brawling drunk in a gutter. And they saw Nanny's dark face and comprehended her dark, comprehended her dark moods, sometimes sinister, each time she had to fetch the wavering and slur-tongued Harrelson from the clink. But life went on. Strangely, Nanny abided this for many years. Her husband's drinking really didn't ever let up but she stayed he'd even be abusive towards her in these drunken states and she still did not leave he yelled at her and he'd threaten the kids for nothing this marriage lasted about 16 years i don't think that nanny was particularly staying because she loved frank but it would seem that she was biding her time until she figured out how she could be rid of frank and since she had already disposed of two children I think she was just trying to figure out if it would be possible to also do the same thing to her husband. By 1940, her surviving daughters, Mel Melvina and Florine, were grown and married. And she had a grandson, Robert, who was born in 1943. And then in February of 1945, her daughter, Melvina, was pregnant again and went into labor. This pregnancy was hard on her and she called on her mother to be by her bedside. Melvina's husband went and fetched Nanny and like a good mother, a grandmother, Nanny remained on duty throughout the night, wiping her daughter's head and comforting her, ordered her husband, Moisey Haynes, to fetch glasses of water and towels and kept the attending nurses and interns, you know, with a pep in their step all day. Moisey, of course, didn't explain, um, didn't complain about this. And like a good grandmother, Nanny celebrated with her daughter and son-in-law when Melvina produced a lovely little girl. But within an hour, the child died. The details are sketchy at best. Mosey had fallen asleep on the chair in the hospital room and Melvina, in a state of semi-consciousness from surgical ether, lay in the bed. And at one point, she happened to glance over at her mother and the newborn was cradled in her arms. But Melvina perceived what she was never afterwards able to determine as truth or a figment of her imagination. She thought she saw Nanny sticking a hat pin into the child's head. This dream bothered Melvina, especially since the doctors could not account for the child's death. And back at home a few days later, Melvina told her husband and Florine what she thought she had seen. It startled her husband and Florine. They had seen Nanny toying with it, a hat pin, turning it over and over between her fingers earlier in the evening. 
Six months later, Melvina's son Robert also passed away while in nanny's care. The daughter had gone to stay with her father, Charlie, after a fight with Mosey, leaving Robert with nanny. How little Robert Lee Haynes died is also a mystery. Nanny seemed heartbroken. She didn't know what happened, and the doctors diagnosed his death as, quote, asphyxia from unknown causes, and she played the grieving grandmother right up to the lowering of his tiny coffin graveside. She fainted, she wailed, she blew despair, and then several months later, she collected a $500 life insurance policy that she had taken out on the baby boy. Having revived her skills in murder and theatrics, she was now ready to take on bigger game. Frank Harrelson. She waited for the opportunity and perhaps to use her conscience just a little a provocation. International events had thrust America into a world war at this point, and America GIs were dying in droves in Europe and the Pacific, and the world had little time to note the deaths of a little boy and a little girl in the foothills of Alabama. And in August 1945, when the last of the enemy powers Japan surrendered, the nation thought of one thing, to welcome home its fathers and brothers and sons. And in every state of the Union, there was a hailing and balloons and all-around ecstasy, and Alabama was no exception. On the night of September 15, 1945, Frank Harrelson went out to a tavern to welcome home some friends from overseas. Tonight, patri tonight's patriotism had given him an excuse to get loaded. Arriving home, he was still in a festive mood. He still wanted sex, fireworks style, and he wanted it fast. And when Nanny refused, he slammed the wall with, a ham, with his hand-sized fist and shouted, If you don't listen to me, woman, I ain't going to be here next week. So she listened to him just to avoid a broken jaw. And as they had sex, Nanny stared at the ceiling and vowed to get even. The next day, tending the little rose garden she adored, she found her husband's corn liquor jar hidden deep in the surrounding flower bed. That was enough. She liked to keep her yard pretty, and she took that jar out to the storeroom and poured some of the drink out and topped it off with rat poisoning. That evening, Harrelson died of excruciating pain at just 38. An hour later, Nanny washed out the empty corn liquor jar. Nanny always stated that she married him for love, but like all her paramours, she loved the sound of the word. Frank Harrelson was no Sir Lancelot. Instead, he was a jailbird and a drunkard, and now he was dead. Killing husbands actually became easier for Nanny after that. Killing, in general, had become a piece of cake. There's a brief period in Nanny's life that is unaccounted for, um... It's believed that she kind of traveled around the country by rail, possibly to New York or as far west as Idaho. Um, what she did on these excursions is anyone's guess. She may have been married to a man named Hendrix. Certain records indicate that, but the police never really followed up. Um, did Mr. Hendrix fall fate to Nanny's temperament? We may never know. And wherever Nanny roamed after Harrelson's death, she finally wound up in the scenic little town of Lexington, North Carolina, in response to yet another Lonely Hearts column. The year was 1947, and the husband-to-be this time was laborer Arlie Lanning, an ex-Alabamian. After meeting him for the first time, the couple married two days later, and Arnie believed that this marriage was made in heaven, and that is exactly where he was later to be dispatched. Life with Arnie wasn't dramatically chaotic as it was with Frank Harrelson, partly because most of the time Nanny wasn't home. Whereas her former spouse had been prodigal, Nanny now mimicked him. Whenever things got hectic, wherever Arlie drank too much or flirted too much, he too, liked his, like his predecessors, loved his alcohol and women, 
Nanny would pull a suitcase from under the closet, from out of the closet, and would leave for parts unknown on a and leave a message on a crumpled piece of paper under the socks shaker that said "gone." Occasionally, Arnie would receive a telegram that said "send money" or "be home soon." The wires came from all directions. She seemed not to remain in one place too long. She simply darted as if she was on an escape route from responsibility. But out of the blue, she would come home, and Arlie, not brutal like Frank had been, would merely shrug a hello, that is, if he wasn't unconscious on the sofa from his drinking. So for a while, he and Annie would play the loving couple, and he knew the reason that she took flight so often, or so she claimed, was his drinking binges and his womanizing. So upon her return... He always committed that he wouldn't drink anymore, and that's a promise that he knew and she knew that he wouldn't keep, and that he would be busted maybe days or weeks, or if he was, if she was lucky, months from then. Nanny acted like the perfect wife for her, for her benefit of her neighbors, and her trips would be explained to visitors or explained to their neighbors as visits to see friends and family, and in part that was true. Nanny would, you know, occasionally go to Alabama and she would visit her sister, Dovey, who had contracted cancer, or she would visit Arlie's 84-year-old mother who lived in a nearby town and needed house cleaning and canning. Evidences of a domestic woman were all there for the Lexington neighbors to see. She made apple pies, fresh laundry, lemon-scented hanging on the line, a manicured garden. Everything was as it should be. She wasn't literate and her vocabulary was minimal, so she chose books that she could read were basic and a little tawdry, but she loved well-built heroes and shapely dames caught in at least one love triangle that usually contained several scenes in a boudoir. Her favorite pastime was watching television, which was a new modern wonder for America, and she loved watching stage shows and, and teleplays and stand-up comedians. And when a love story was to be aired, one didn't dare bother nanny while she was watching she would pull up her most comfortable chair with her plate of leftovers her pack of camels and she would lose herself in the gray kaleidoscope of heart throbs and kisses in lexington nanny was an avid churchgoer and she'd become intimate with the with the minister's family and many of the families in the methodist congregation Arlie Lanning, during sober periods, would accompany his wife to Sunday morning services and remain with her afterwards for the tea socials and picnics. But there were whispers among the attendees at these functions generated by the president, presence of Mr. Lanning. His reputation to be blunt preceded him. Before and during his marriage to Nanny, he was often seen in the lower Lexington dives with one of the quote-unquote floozies who hung there. Arlie was a rapscallion of sorts, and the fine people of the Lexington Methodist Church, well, they didn't know if she was aware of what he was doing, but far be it from them to break her heart. Um, and behind closed doors and quiet conversation, her husband Arlie was the town's villain, and she was, well, a martyr. So when the town turned out for Arlie's funeral in February 1950, it was out of great respect for the heartbroken widow, and not necessarily Arlie. Yes, Arlie had died suddenly. The cause was heart failure, and of course there was something that it caused his heart to fail, the doctor said, but in cases like Arlie's, where there was absolutely no reason for suspicion, an autopsy would just be a waste of time. Any number of things could have caused him to lie in pain, as he did for a couple of days before succumbing. Most likely it had been the dangerous flu virus that had been sweeping the state and striking some people worse than others. After all, the doctor admitted, Arlie's body had not been in the best shape. His stomach was already half gone from all the drinking and his heart was already weakened. 
He just sat down one morning to drink a cup of coffee and eat a bowl of prunes I prepared for him, Nanny admitted to her neighbors gathered around his coffin. Up until then, why, let me tell you, he looked in fine shape. Then, well, two days later, dead. I nursed him, believe me, I nursed him, but I failed. And for an extra touch, she dabbed her eyes with her handkerchief. Poor, poor Arley, she exclaimed. You know what he said to me before he breathed his last breath? He said, Nanny, it must have been the coffee. On April 21st, eight weeks after Arley passed, the tidy frame home that he and Nanny had lived in burned down to the foundation. It was a stroke of luck for the widow because the house had survived and would have, under the conditions set forth in Arley's will, gone to his sister. Coincidentally, Nanny was not at home when the house burned down, this time just leaving the premises with her favorite household item, the TV set tucked and tucked away in the back seat of her Ford. It was I was on my way to have it repaired, she explained. As it were, the insurance company issued a check to Arley Lanning, deceased, which was mailed to his widow, who was lodging by then with Arley's mother. The claimant exponentially cast the check and left North Carolina, but only after the elder Mrs. Lanning died strangely in her sleep. And with day and within days, Nanny showed up to her sister Dovey's residence in Gadsden with a TV in tow, where she nursed her bedridden cancer cancer-having sibling, whose condition from that point seemed to continue downhill. Dubby died June 30th, also in her sleep. Apparently, anything that annoyed Nanny um, met with elimination. And if killing people brought a little extra income, an insurance policy here or there, well, she considered that a bonus. Payment for her cleverness, if you will. Um, and as fitting for people with dark sides, Nanny was very clever. She was very intelligent. Um, she was able to get away with her crimes because of the places she lived and the naive times. She was also able to really fool so many people. She was a great actress and she had laymen and professionals, medical professionals, fooled during a killing spree that lasted more than 20 years. Keep in mind that at this point in our story, Nanny has killed two husbands, two of her children, two grandchildren, allegedly um and then if you want to say by really what all signs point to that she killed her own sister and one of her mother-in-laws so she's been a busy lady i'll take this time to kind of point out that we've discussed kind of the psychology of female serial killers in an episode that we did on dorothea pointy um the death house landlady so we won't get too much into it here but typically when it comes to female serial killers there are a few things that tend to be pretty common one into violent deaths right they're not stranglers they're not stabbers they aren't really shooters and obviously there are exceptions to every rule but typically when women are doing the killing they pick something that is very low mess low effort so poison um especially arsenic and rat poison is very very common tool for murders um for women especially when we're talking about the early 1900s 1940s 1950s before um Things like arsenic and rat poison were a little bit more far back as 1800s when you talk about somebody as well. So this was really common fare for the women back then. The medical field was really kind of still burgeoning at this point, right? Like a lot of things were put down as illnesses that were unexplained. Now we, you know, we run tests and do autopsies and the telltale signs of arsenic poison, somebody would absolutely recognize that and you'd be able to be cured if you weren't too far along but back then all the signs of arsenic poison presented much like you were having um some type of gastro gastroenteritis um gastritis it could be diphtheria 
you know, it could be any number of illnesses that could be attributed to stomach illnesses, um, poisoning, obviously, uh, preserving food wasn't um, as prevalent as it was. Granted, they did salt and could can things, but certainly not the level of food safety that we have now and people still get food poisoning to this day. So you can only imagine what it was. So stomach ailments in this time and place were pretty common. So, you know, if you if you died from a stomach ailment or gastro pains or, you know, like that was pretty common back then. Nobody asked a lot of questions about this. And the rat poisoning or rat poison on its own is not necessarily an indicator that you've done anything wrong because, well, everyone had rats. And so and especially when you were living on farms or living where you kind of had a lot of wild animals, Having rat poison on a farm or a lot of these homesteads was, again, pretty common. This was the South. It was Alabama. So nothing that Nanny has done up to this point has been particularly conspicuous or suspicious to anyone around her. And she's also been very, very smart in making sure that she presents a very particular facade to the people around her. We see this especially um, in Arlie's case where she, you know, really made sure that she did not appear suspicious. She made everything look as if they had a very loving, happy marriage and that Arlie was the one at fault. That way that she could gain pity and sympathy when something eventually did happen to Arlie. So to the world around her, she just looks like poor Nanny who has had a stroke of bad luck with men who weren't great to begin with and nobody's going to miss them anyway. And so this is where husband Richard, the fourth husband, enters the picture. The Diamond Circle Club was a correspondence association for people that were looking for life partners and the membership for it was $15 per year. And suitors and ladies received a monthly newsletter that regaled the newest members and their heart's desires. And Nanny was absolutely enthralled with this. So by 1952, she was at it again. Nanny, by this time, you know, had, had kind of lost her girlish figure. And she now wore glasses and kind of had gained a bit of weight. She didn't really turn heads the way she used to. And she decided that the time may come to seek admiration in the eyes of a more mature type of male. So now she was like curly headed boys were passe. She maybe needed all along was a, a real man. And so she thought that she had found him in a recently retired businessman named Richard Morton of Emporia, Kansas. So Nanny still had this girlish giggle and she still know how to use it to entice and so when she learned how to flash those eyes and at 47 she was more capable than ever of, of wooing a man and so Morton who was a former salesman and you know he was really a different change from what she had been used to um and to prove it, he wrote the Diamond Circle and asked them to delete him and Nanny's names from the availability list and thanked him from the Circle Club for introducing him to, quote, the sweetest and most wonderful woman I have ever met. By October of 1952, they had wed and she moved into his little home in Emporia. So Kansas and its plains were very different from where the mountain greenery of Nanny had grown up in. So for a while, it was, you know, thrilling for her and she was happy in the arms of her new man, um, he was tall, dark, and handsome, and he bought her things, you know, it was all of her romantic fantasies brought to life. Within a few months of their marriage, things started to break down. It would seem that Mr. Morton was 
broke, deep in debt to everyone. And when he did buy her some pretty little trinket or bauble or whatever credit he managed to affect through his charms or whims, he also brought the same thing for another girl that he had stashed away in town. So Morton's occasional trips into the store in his Chevy pickup truck to buy this and that for the house and the farm struck Nanny as being rather lengthy for casual trips, and it became more prolonged each time. And so she started to prod as to how, why they were so long, and her husband would reply with an air of apathy, oh, I just dwaddled, I guess. She investigated and discovered that he was seeing someone he had known before he got married and seemed to have no intention of dropping. Nanny had made a mistake, sure, but... Morton had made a bigger one. She picked a phony. He picked a killer. By Christmas, two months after they had tied the knot, Nanny was again answering other gentlemen's ads from the lovelorn columns of the Kansas papers. She'd be sure to fetch the mail every day from the mailbox, and then if a letter from one of her admirers had arrived, she would sneak off with it to the bathroom. In silence, she would swoon over the words written from her new paramour. The writers, thinking that she was a widow, offered to sleep her away from her troubles under the promise of marital bliss. Each sentimental, until we meet at last, Nanny, or hoping to see you soon, Nanny, whisked her away a step closer to ridding herself to the thing beyond the bathroom door to who to her had grown ugly and repulsive. Husband number four was destined for the ground, but he might have been spared a couple of months when Papa James Hazel died in Blue Mountain, and Mama Lou suddenly announced she was coming to board with the couple. With her mama there, Nanny's murderous designs were delayed, well, at least on Morton. By all accounts, Nanny performed the unthinkable. She murdered Lou Hazel, her mother. Whether Lou's money was the object or whether she just got in the way of Nanny's plot to grid herself of her husband, perhaps the mama had gotten a glimpse of one of Nanny's letters, the motive here is really unclear. Nanny would always vehemently deny poisoning her mother, Lou, but considering the hasty manner in which all others had died after crossing Nanny's path, as well as the preceding symptoms of the death, it seems very likely that her mother did not die naturally. Terry Manners in The Deadlier Than Male believes that it was simply Mrs. Hazel's inopportunity inopportune arrival that sealed her fate. She came in January 1953 and this was really a bad time and after a couple of days with her daughter she fell ill with chronic stomach pains and died. In retrospect Nanny had grown totally devoid of any heart she once had and had she had won at the outset this latest act shows a total lack of sympathy, loyalty, or conscience. Her mother had effectively taken her back in after you know, her first husband had left. She had taken care of her children. For all intents and purposes, everything that is reported about Lou Hazel and her relationship with Nanny Doss or with Nanny was that it was really good. They didn't really have any issues. She really did love her daughter. She tried to care for her in the best way she could. And aside from being married to an abusive drunk who controlled all of their lives, there was nothing weird or angry to report. In fact, Lou had done nothing to Nanny except for show up on her doorstep after the death of her husband. And although Nanny's education is believed to have not reached past the sixth grade, she absolutely was steadfast in being, you know, boldly psychological in the way that she got rid of these family members. Three months after Lou was buried in the ground, her latest son-in-law, Richard Morton, joined her. He died of similar stomach ailment. And still no one, her family, her friends, the doctors, neighbors, asked any questions and this is when she met Sam. Sam Doss was a sturdy man. He was solid. He was a God-fearing man. 
He didn't chase women. He never smoked, never drank, refused to play dice, and lacked the effort to exhale a single curse word. He was careful about his appearance, thrifty with his bank account, never wild, loved nature, and saw the good in almost everything. Sam Doss was unbelievably, irrevocably boring. Or at least that's what Nanny found him to be. For all intents and purposes and reports, Sam Doss was a very kind, trusting parents, parent, person. Oh my God, why am I calling him a parent? So sorry. Sam Doss was a very trusting person in his appearance. And maybe this is what draw Nan drew Nanny to his side, but he proposed to her in June of 1953. Nanny was a widow and that's all that Sam knew about her. And that's all he really cared to know. Um, he counted his blessings and this fine, smiling, good cook of a woman was what he wanted in his later years. Someone who preferred her home and hearth and would stay by his side until death did them part. He was exceedingly correct, if not foresighted, on this latter supposition. Sam had been one of Nanny's pen pal, pen pal paramours, and after Richard Morden was dead, she grabbed the first bus out to meet Doss in his hometown of Tulsa, Oklahoma. At first, he provided his bride with a refreshing detour from all his past mates. He worked a steady job, he spoke softly and succinctly, and he often wore a necktie. He helped around the house, he helped with the cook, and did not portray himself as the king of the house attitude as so many others have. Certainly, he was neither threatening nor violent, but he was set in his ways, and that was irritating to his less conservative wife. He did not believe in being wasteful or reading cheap magazines or romance novels. He saw them as an evil idleness. Radio and television were products meant to enrich the mind, which meant that comedies and love stories were taboo. Bedtime came promptly at 9.30 p.m., an agenda he followed like an automaton to which he expected his wife to adhere. Their sex was even pre-scheduled. Spending patterns came hardline. One never used the electric fan until tempers ex temperatures exceeded the unbearable. Light rooms to rooms were frugally used, turned on only when entering and turned off immediately upon leaving. When reading, only the reading lamp behind the easy chair would be illuminated in an otherwise darkened room. Furniture was costly, so doilies were prevalent to preserve the upholstery. When the pinching of pennies and the die-hard living became overbearing, Nanny took a hiatus home in Alabama. Most likely it was strategy, and if so, it worked. The moment she escaped, he was hot on her trail with letters pleading forgiveness. To show his earnestness, he opened up his pocketbook to let her enjoy the life to which she was more accustomed. When she continued to balk that he still controlled the finances, he rearranged his banking account to give her equal liberty. He then took out two life insurance policies, naming her the beneficiary. That, Sam, was a blunder, big time. And on a cool September evening, as Doss sat at the dinner table, sliding his cleaned-off plate aside to partake in Nanny's prune cake, and that night, he began retching and, and, and grasping at his stomach in violent pain. The spasms were ungodly. He took to the bed for days, and he lost 16 pounds in weight. Finally, his doctor sent him to the hospital, where he stayed for 23 days. The hospital's diagnosis had been a severe infection to his digestive tract, and upon his release, October 5th, Nanny, disgruntled at the time wasted, went right back to where she had left off. Right back. She allowed him one good afternoon's rest back in his own overstuffed chair, and she woke him up for dinner that she had especially prepared for his welcome home. This will get you back on your feet in a jiffy, she promised, passing him a cup of coffee first. 
Doss sipped it first, and then, as it cooled, he took a larger and larger gulp each time between a mouthful of delicious pork roast. The roast was fine. The coffee was a harbinger mixed with arsenic, and before the toll of midnight, Sam Doss was dead. In her rush to rid herself of her latest and by far not the greatest husband, Nanny erred. Usually steadfast and calm, she had been in too much of a hurry this time around. His doctor had examined Dawes prior to his release from the hospital only the day before and was dismayed to hear that his patient was dead. And this, he said, did not make any sense, so he ordered an autopsy. And as he had suspected, Sam Dawes had not died of natural causes. In the intestines and stomach, his doctor found the remains of a pork roast dinner and enough arsenic to kill a team of horses. Nanny Doss, unable to explain where the arsenic it came from, was promptly arrested. At first, Nanny refused to acknowledge her role in Sam Doss's poisoning. He was her husband, she said, and she wouldn't have harmed him. But the police wouldn't let up. Arsenic, they reminded her, does not come naturally from pork, meat, or coffee beans. And in fact, when Sam was admitted to the hospital a month earlier, he had just devoured a plateful of her prunes. Were they poisoned too, Nanny, they asked? I don't know what you're talking about. And she giggled at the ridiculousness of their line of questioning. Me? Poison? Hour after hour, they drilled her, trying to get her to pay attention to them, never mind the copy of the romance magazine she kept thumbing through. Put the magazine down, Nanny, and listen to us. Nanny, look at us. Why did you kill Sam Doss? Ordinarily, any one of the investigators wouldn't have put up with this crap. They would have ripped the magazine from the suspect's hands and flung it in a trash can. And if the suspect didn't open up, they might as well follow the magazine to the same spot. But it was difficult to get rough with this sweet grandmotherly type. That giggle, that harmless, innocent giggle. Quote, Nanny, we've been here for hours now. Aren't you getting tired? You killed him. We know you killed him. You know you killed him. Oh, boys, come on now. I killed nobody. I don't know what you think I did, she fluttered. Special Agent Ray Page, heading the investigation, signaled his own man outside and stepped forward. He lit a cigarette and sat beside her at the long table in this dim interrogation room and rubbed a tired pair of eyes. He noted with surprise that unlike himself and his squad, she had not wilted at all. We've made phone calls, Nanny, and we've learned that Mr. Doss was your fourth husband to die of the same symptoms. We're putting two and two together, and it looks like we might just come up with, well, four. Arsenic. We believe they all died of arsenic. It'll be easier if you admit what you've done, ahead of time, I mean, before we have to find out for ourselves. Nanny replied, are you saying, young man, that I killed all of my husbands? And she giggled again. You're a nice-looking young man, but so foolish. Paige didn't know whether to laugh or cry. Was she insane? Or was she the greatest actress that ever lived? Move over, Davis, he thought. He'd seen some cool cucumbers in his days, but this woman had them all beat. It was time to get serious with old mother arsenic. And so he reached over and drew the magazine from her hands. No more, no more reading, Nanny. You're going to answer us. This time she looked at him, not giggling. Nanny, he went on, there are others too, aren't there? A lot of people around you dropped dead over the last couple of decades and our ghosts are coming back to haunt you. Put them to rest, Nanny. Put them to rest. For a moment, their eyes met and Nanny sighed and nodded. All right, all right. She giggled again, but at least she began to talk. 
She confessed to poisoning Sam Doss's coffee, but not out of maliciousness. She said that he wouldn't let her watch her favorite programs on television, and she said she made her sleep without the fan on the, hot, on the hottest nights. She said, quote, he was a miser, and, well, what's a woman to do under those conditions? The detectives in the room exchanged glances, eyebrows raised. She is serious, isn't she? Okay, there she, there you have it. She laughed in the same demeanor as a child admitting that she stole her sister's hair ribbon. Can I have my magazine back now? First, tell us about the other husbands, Paige returned. Nanny thought for a second. If I do, will you give me back my romantic hearts? I promise, Ray answered. She shrugged and smiled. It's a deal. And from there, she told them about Richard Morton, Arlie Lanning, and Frank Harrelson, too. All men whom she had met and first admired, but then turned out to be duds. All she ever wanted was romance and a man to love her. But instead, she got what she described as, quote-unquote, dullards, every one of them. Quote, if their ghosts are in this room, they're either drunk or sleeping, quote. Paige, shaking his head, handed her back the magazine. The morning after the confessions, Paige and other detectives from Tulsa fanned out to Kansas, North Carolina, and Alabama to take part in the exhumations of her husbands, her mother, her sister, Dovey, and her nephew, Robert, and her mother-in-law, Arlie Lanning's mother. Arsenic traces were heavy in each one of the deceased spouses and in her mother. The bodies of the other family members, while not indicating toxic substances, all appeared to have perished by asphyxia. Strong suspicion animated that they were probably smothered in their sleep. Several days after Nanny's arrest, a man by the name of John Keel stepped forth from North Carolina looking very relieved. He's a dairy farmer who had corresponded with Nanny after finding her ad in a Lonely Hearts column. She had told him she was a widow and she was yearning for a good man with whom to settle, and she had sent him a homemade cake, and that was why Keel was relieved. It hadn't been his favorite apple and prune, or else he might have um, killed over two. The first husband, Charlie Braggs, or quote, the husband who got away, was primetime reporter material. As the laboratory findings from Nanny's other deceased husbands came in, newspapers swarmed Braggs about his take on the case and his opinions and recollection from his ex-wife provided excellent and sometimes even witty material for column upon column. Quote, she was always running off with one man or another, never home, and was about town more than me, he exclaimed, when one porter asked him if it was true that their marriage had been adulterous. And anyway, to tell you the truth, I was glad she was off. I got to the point I was afraid to eat anything she cooked. He had asked that the bodies of his two daughters be disinterred along with the others that the papers had listed as being suspect. But the government had obviously figured that they had enough on Mrs. Doss to send her away for a long, long time. The state of Oklahoma, deciding the case, centered its allegations on the death of Doss only, who died in Tulsa. The states where the other victims were uncovered still wanted her for the respective deaths within their jurisdictions. She was never tried outside of Oklahoma, however. When newshounds finally caught up with Nanny after her indictment, they asked her what she thought should be done with her for poisoning Sam Doss. Her answer came in the form of her familiar jocularity. Grinning into their flashbulbs, she replied, Why, anything, anything they care to do is all right by me. End quote. After a quartet of psychiatrists diagnosed her mentally sane, her trial was set for June 2nd, 1955 in Tulsa, Oklahoma. But... On May 17th, she decided to forget the whole rigmarole and simply because her lawyers did not know how else to advise her, she pled guilty. 
And after a brief hearing, Judge Elmer Adams sentenced her to life imprisonment, barring the electric chair because she's a female. At this point, they weren't they weren't giving women the electric chair. And Nanny spent the rest of her days in the Oklahoma State Penitentiary still dreaming of of this eternal love that she wanted. And Nanny Doss died in leukemia in the prison's hospital ward still without that love that she so hoped that she would find. And that, you guys, is the story of Nanny Doss, the giggling granny. Um, I hope you enjoyed this one. Um, I did not put any trigger warnings at the top. I'm so sorry about that. Um, but I think this is fascinating. Um, and especially for the time and the era, you find so many more female serial killers in this time, in this era. Because like I said, rat poisoning and arsenic poisoning were, were pretty common. So she's really kind of on par with the other poisoners of the day, so to speak. Um, please let me know what you think of this story. Um, this one was not as gory and as gruesome as many of our others. So I, you know, am grateful for that, especially since we are celebrating Women's History Month, um, the month of March. So we'll have more interesting stories, some more, more current, some others a little bit older to kind of talk about, well, in this case, the history of female criminals and, and criminality and the way female, um, killers are treated. Uh, so I think this was just a good warm up. Um, again, thank you so much for tuning in. I hope that you really, really enjoyed this. Um, if you'd like to talk to me about this episode, make suggestions for other episodes, or just tell me what you think of the show, you can do that. Um, you can email the show's email. That is murdervpod at gmail.com. You can also catch us on social media. Um, my personal Twitter is at VJ underscore Burton, the same for my Instagram. Or you can follow the show's Twitter and Instagram, and those are going to be at MurderVEEPod on both Twitter and Instagram. You can catch me there. I love to talk about episodes with you. Um, again, just let me know what you think of the episodes. Um, show is available on Spotify as well as Apple Podcasts. If you could please like, rate, review, share the podcast with others. That's how we're able to grow, um, and hopefully that's how I'm able to keep bringing you um, great episodes. So with that being said, um, I don't think I have anything else for you guys this week. Um, so please, if you could, uh, just stay safe. Have a wonderful first week of March. I hope it has been great for you. Um, and as I said before, thank you for tuning in. Um, you have been listening to Murder V Road. And I'm, of course, your host, V.